0: We are going to be in Matthew chapter 12 um, because hopefully you remember that we left off uh, in Matthew chapter 11. Do you remember that? Who is remembering the yoke analogy? Who's thinking about that picture all the time, right? Me too. Um, Some of you are like, no, I don't remember at all. Anyway, I just thought it was a cute picture, so... I feel like it would stick. So let's just do a little refresh of chapter 11, just so we're caught up. And we know what we're moving into, into chapter 12. Um, hopefully you'll remember in chapter 11, now, now Josh taught this first part, and I taught kind of the second part, but that that um, chapter 11 talks about this dude named John the Baptist, who was one of the greatest prophets to ever live, and he had just been arrested and imprisoned. So the time is like getting weird for Jesus and those who are ushering in his kingdom, and we know that the people of the day, their disinterest in John's message and in Jesus's message was growing. There was kind of like this indifference or a lackluster response to the proclamation of the kingdom, and so in chapter 11, we found Jesus calling the people to leave behind the teachings of the spiritual leaders of the day, or the Pharisees, to ultimately follow his teachings and his way of life, because if you remember at the end of chapter 11, Only he could give them rest for their souls. Now, it's at this point in our text, as we move into chapter 12, uh, that the tide will begin to turn in really evident ways against Jesus. So if you were thinking, no, I remember when we were in Matthew chapter 9, I don't know if Josh told you this, or maybe I was here and I told you this, we've been in the book of Matthew for years. I mean, we can't remember what's happening. I'm like, where are, why are we not even halfway through? Hello? But we're not. So here we are. Um, but we're almost there. We're almost halfway through. Uh, but anyway, in chapter 9, the, the tide in the text began to turn, and we knew that Jesus at that point was making his way to Jerusalem, which means he knows that he was going to Jerusalem to die. But in chapter 12, we see this like tension growing, and we see that, that now the scheme of the Pharisees, or those who would be working against Jesus, is getting heightened and more intense. So with that, we are going to dive into the text. Now normally, I read the whole thing, but you can read most of you, and, um, and that's exciting news. So we're actually just going to take it line by line together to save a little bit of time, but we will work through the actual text. Is that okay? Great. So verbal. Look at uh, verse 1, Matthew 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Now, look up real quick. Jesus and his disciples, they're making their way through the region of Galilee. Remember that they were in that space, and they're walking about, as you do, and, um, and they're hungry. So they stop for a snack. They snap the heads of, of the grains, the whatever, I don't even know what they're called, just the head grains. The grains of head, heads of grains, and they're popping them off, and they're eating them like you do. Some of you guys actually eat food like that, um, so you can relate. You're like, I get this. This is totally something I eat. So they're having a little snack. They're walking along, and they're they're tired. They've probably been walking all day, and they're hungry. Now, what's important for you to note here is that this was all done on the Sabbath, a day that every Jewish person knew was set aside to worship God, and on that day, according to the Ten Commandments, they were not to do work of any kind but instead they were supposed to rest. So they being Jewish people would have known this. Now, side note for all the Bible nerds in the room, remember that Jesus had just said that he would provide rest to those who were burdened. And so it's slightly ironic and very appropriate of Matthew, our author, uh, to immediately involve Jesus in this controversy around the Sabbath, a day set aside for rest. Okay, moving on. Now, the disciples picking and eating of this, the wheat heads or the grains of wheat, whatever we're calling it, it's a very big problem for me, apparently. And um, them doing that, the Pharisees say, is work. The, the Pharisees observe this, and they say, that is work. And so they call out Jesus, and they accuse his disciples of doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath, an accusation they hoped would discredit him as a rabbi altogether because a good rabbi would know that was not appropriate. And they're hoping to squelch his influence in the region. He's just having these incredible dialogues and these spaces of influence, and though disinterest is kind of back and forth, they're wanting to get rid of him once and for all. So the question we should be asking, and the question that they were asking at some level is, is Jesus overlooking the command found in the Torah for every Jewish person? Is he indifferent to his disciples' disobedience to the scripture itself? And that is totally a fair and very good question. Thank you for asking. Now, just as he often does, unafraid of the accusation, Jesus meets the Pharisees on their own territory, and he appeals to their strength as students of the scriptures because really the controversy here wasn't about whether Sabbath should be observed. That's not what they were arguing about, but more about what the observance actually entailed. So look down at verse 3. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priest. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on the Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and are yet innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would have not condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, Jesus quickly responds, and he says this phrase, haven't you read? Which some scholars say is his way of compassionately saying, if you only knew what this actually meant. Uh, Something else that's important to note here when he asks this question, Um, he's saying, haven't you read? When he addresses the crowds, you'll remember he'll say something more like, haven't you heard? And these are two clear distinctions that are important because they reiterate to us why it was important for Jesus to bring the Pharisees back to the scriptures. They believed that they understood and knew so well. So he's getting a little crafty here. Now, Jesus immediately refers to this story about this guy named David, or King David, out of 1 Samuel 21, and some of you remember the story because you went to Sunday school Bravo. But for those of you who didn't, let me give you a little um, background. One thing you need to know is that David, at the time, especially for the Jewish people who were listening, was understood to be one of, if not Israel's greatest king. And while he was a king, really significant in the history of Israel, he was also known as a Messiah-type figure. People looked to him and saw this reflection of what Messiah would be uh, would be like. So all that to say, David was a really big deal. And when they heard him talking about David, their ears... have perked up. So a little backstory on what Jesus is referring to here. So David was anointed king. Um, You know, you get anointed back in the day to be king, so it's like not enough, you don't even have to have a big robe or ceremony or anything. You can be anointed by God to be king. So he was anointed as king, but then it got a little sticky because there's this dude named Saul who was the actual king at the time, so you can imagine how awkward that was. It's like, hey, but I'm anointed, and he's like, but I'm on the throne, so there's like this awkward tension between, you can imagine, the two, so David's anointed, and Saul's like, but I'm the king, so Saul's like, I should kill you so that I can keep my throne, makes sense, so he goes on the run, David's like running, and he's like, I'm anointed, but you know, like don't get me, or whatever, so he runs, and Saul's chasing him, and he has all these men, David has these men with him who battle with him, it's an incredible story, Um, it's really inspiring, but you should go back and read it in your own free time. All that to say, they stop by a temple because they're like we're starving, and they know there'll be food at the temple. And um, and and David says, "Can we eat?" And so there's this bread. And actually, for those of you who are fans in the room, it's what scriptures actually call show bread. <laughs> so um, ah huh, and it's consecrated bread. It's bread that's set apart um, for the priest only. Um, but but David has this dialogue. Abimelech the priest knows he's the king. He's like you know he asks him all these like really intense questions, and then he says eat. Here's the scraps left over, you all eat. So Jesus is referring to the story about David, who, who the rabbis would have held in the highest regard, and he says, and they ate the bread in the temple, something that was totally unlawful to do. So um, what we read in that text and what he was referring to, uh, to the rabbis of the day is that they were not scolded for eating the bread. And in fact, quite the opposite, they were encouraged to eat the bread at the end of the text. So he's like, here we go. Um, Now, he doesn't stop there because in verse 5, he directs the attention of the Pharisees to the necessity of priests working on the Sabbath to offer sacrifices, um, which would have been required by law for them to do. So he says the priests are actually working on the Sabbath, and yet they don't desecrate the day. They're not, I mean, they desecrate it in the sense that they're working, but there's not a penalty for it. So what do you do with that, Pharisees? So that's kind of what he's saying. Um, so then we, move, we see him move on. So now he's talked about um, and really reframed their understanding of the holy day, the, the Sabbath. And now he moves on to redefining the holy table or the temple, which, which would have been a really big deal. Simply put, Jesus makes the point that the temple surpasses Sabbath observance. And, and they can't argue with him because they know that's actually true. So... We find Jesus providing a model argument to the Pharisees, a brilliant argument. His use of scripture makes it clear to the Pharisees that they are in the presence of someone who would challenge their very existence and their way of doing things, and it was once again infuriating and provocative. Now, at the core of his response to the Pharisees, Jesus is speaking to this idea of the restoration of the idea of rest, and it's his heart we see all throughout the scriptures, but in this text even, that he's after protect, protecting what it's in danger of becoming, which is a burden more than a blessing. And he's saying, hey, reframe the way that you're understanding this. Now in verse 6, Jesus moves in on his main point, which is this, more than the temple is here. Now we don't use language like that because it's really weird, like if I said more than my cute shirt is here. You know, you guys would be like, "Well, we s- we get that," but um, but it's like weird language to say. But it's this really important moment in the argument. It's where everything comes together. Cause here's here's the math equation. All you math people, get excited! I didn't put it on the screen because I'm so afraid. I was having a tr- uh, trouble with the greater than symbols. I'm like, does the does the alligator eat it, yeah. or is it like away from it? Like, I, so some of you teachers in here, are like, okay, yeah, and that's fair. Cause I had to take geometry a lot. Uh, in high school. So, okay, so here it is. If authority, if being king trumps the action, trumps eating the bread or whatever, and if if the temple or the priests trump the Sabbath, then it follows that a greater than the temple could allow Sabbath work. That's the point he's making. Does that make sense? A bunch of these. Uh, A greater than symbol. And, And so what we find is Jesus boldly claiming to be the greater one one who is greater than even king david david himself and that would have been super provocative rt france a scholar in the book of matthew helps us understand the gravity of what jesus is saying here when he says when jesus speaks of the temple he's not contrasting himself against a person but is pointing beyond himself to the new principle of god's relationship with his people which will result from jesus's ministry a principle which will remain embodied in the community of his disciples even when Jesus himself is no longer present. This is what Jesus was after. He's saying there's more to this than you can see, and he's calling their attention to that reality. Now, verse 7. Uh, here Jesus refers back. He's using another, one more scripture, so he's kind of going heavy with it. So it's like, if this wasn't a strong enough point, I've made these two big ones. Let me, let me make one more. He refers back to the words of an Old Testament prophet named Hosea, And he states that mercy, not sacrifice, should be at the center of Israel's worship, something they would have known, something they would have read and understood. And it's almost as if Jesus was saying to the Pharisees, the point of the law is not the scrupulous self-sacrifice that you draw from it. Instead, it is the wide-hearted humanity the prophets make of it. So he's pointing it back to what the prophets said and say it's so much more than you think it is. And Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees for missing the point of the law, which is that the commandment is really kept only when its inner meaning is kept. Just doing the behavior isn't actually keeping the commandment, which would have shocked them. So you're all shocked too, I can tell. You're riveted. I can tell. This is just such a wild crowd. Okay, so Jesus, I know this is really intense stuff. What's feeling edgy in here? Okay, so Jesus reveals that the Pharisees found guilt where God saw none, and he just like lays it out for them, and in verse 8, he makes a bigger announcement than he did in the few verses uh, before that, and he says, not only is the Son of Man um, here, he is greater than David, King David, the Messiah-type figure, and they would have all been like blasphemy, And and not only that, but he is greater than the temple. Okay, think about that. And he is Lord of the institution. So he is saying, I carry all of those things in me. Now, people listening would have been shocked if there were some around. And this would have blown the Pharisees' socks off, and they would have been more determined than ever either to follow him or to kill him. And that's what we're getting at in our text. Okay. Now, Jesus makes this claim, and he moves from this wild controversy that happens out in the grain fields with the Pharisees um, into another. He goes immediately into another controversy. Sounds like some of our weeks, you know what I mean? Uh, Jesus defeats his enemies. He does it, and his enemies, I mean the Pharisees, He, he defeats his people who are trying to take him down by piling scripture on top of scripture until the accusation of the Pharisees was put in its rightful place. Now, in the second controversy, he's going to go a different route. He's going to do something a little bit different. He's going to not use the scriptures, and this time he's going to appeal to common sense. Look down at verse 9. Going on from that place, so he leaves the fields, I guess, he went into their synagogue. And a man with a shriveled hand was there, looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus. They asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And he said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. So, Jesus moves along. He's like, we were just trying to have a snack. My preference is corn nuts. There's our heads of wheat or whatever, right? And they move along, and they go to a synagogue. And it seems that either the Pharisees followed him to the synagogue or that there were more Pharisees in the synagogue who were in on the plot against Jesus. Either way, we find that there are accusers present when Jesus enters the synagogue. And when he arrives, he meets a man who has a shriveled hand. And uh, the Pharisees see this, and they know what he's done in the region, right? They know that he's a healer, that he's done miracles, and so they go for it. They're just going to go for it. They're like, okay, this is our opportunity to test Jesus. And once again, they're hoping that he will fail and be discredited once and for all. And so they ask Jesus, is it lawful to heal people on the Sabbath? And again, Jesus uh, responds. He's like, okay, well, okay, let's do it again. So in verse 11, he offers a story about a sheep, and, um, and in that, he is tapping into, subtly, their love of wealth and provision. This is something that the Pharisees were known for. They were people who loved wealth. So he's saying this sheep represents resources. It represents this man's source of income, his lifestyle, all of that. The sheep is that. So he says, if this sheep fell into a ditch, and so our equivalent today would be like a, our work trucks falling into ditches. Are you with me? Like if you have a work truck that you need, for work. Maybe you haul hay or, or carry stuff. I was trying to think of stuff you do with a truck, and I honestly was like, I don't know. What do you do? Which is very, that's a reflection on me. So there's some culture work I need to do. But anyway, if your truck fell into a ditch, he's like, um, and you depend on that, that thing to make a living, wouldn't you pull it out? And, and everyone's like, well, of course. And even the, the rabbi or the Pharisees would say, of course. But he's saying, like, right then and there, wouldn't you pull it out? If you had a sheep in a ditch that was, and, you know, sheeps can die in a ditch. Did you know that? They can get hungry. They tip over. They have weird stuff that happens to them. There's a reason they're an analogy in the Bible. You're all, we're all sheep. It's weird. So, so sheeps could die. And he's like, wouldn't you pull it out? Not just waiting, but wouldn't you pull it out immediately? Because this is your sheep. It's a real life thing. In your truck, same thing. I have to get to work tomorrow. You, you wouldn't wait till the sun set and Sabbath was over. And then you'd get the sheep out. You'd be like, so sorry, but the sun hasn't set yet, so just sit tight. Nah, you know, it's like, what are you going to do? So he says, of course you would pull it out. Of course you would do that. And he goes on, he says, no one would, no one would do that. No one would leave their truck or their animal in the pit. And he says, and, and this, like that, those things are things, that's an animal, but this, this is a man. This is a person. And he says in so many words, of course it is lawful to do good, to do the right thing on the Sabbath. And so Jesus makes this point loud and clear. It's about here the spirit of the law, not the law itself. If there had been any greater contrast, I don't know what it would have been. Now I want us to pause a second because I don't want us to miss what Jesus is doing here in this moment. It is revolutionary in their day and time. He is flipping their religious practice, their entire way of life, their society's way of life, and he's flipping it on its head. And once again, he's pointing out the reality that religion, without relationship to God himself, is nothing short of empty ritualism. Are they both important? Yes. Is ritual important? Is the practice and the discipline important? Yes. But they are interconnected. And they're not to be isolated experiences. And over and over again, Jesus has said it to the Pharisees. Over and over again, he's pleaded with them to understand that there is a deeper meaning behind their actions. And here he draws a hard line, uh, taking the command of Sabbath and rightly centering it now around the welfare of persons and communities instead of an opportunity for religious showing off. He's saying there's much more than what you can see. And he's unveiling the heart or the message or the more, if you will, behind the action. And it's this message that is something he keeps doing over and over again. On his way to Jerusalem, it's almost as if he's pleading with people over and over again, specifically the Pharisees, in an act of mercy. Would you just listen? Would you just understand what all of this means? So, from there, Jesus goes on in verse 13, and he demonstrates the reality of that kingdom. The thing he's been talking about, the reality of the heart behind the law, all of this comes into play when he says to the man, stretch out your hand, and he heals it. And, of course, the Pharisees see this, and he's already shut him down because he's just, like, dropping mics left and right, right? And they go and hold a meeting about how they're going to kill him. So they go away, and they're like, not cool. And they've, they've had this rhythm, right? Jesus says something, and they go away. They keep going away. They keep going away. And now they're going away to plot his death. And here, in the words of one of our scholars, the shadows of passion begin to form. And if when you think passion, you're thinking like fruit or something else, shame on you. Uh, that's not what I'm talking about. In, in church history, this idea of passion is in reference to the story of Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. So this author is saying, we, we want I want you to get a glimpse of what is actually taking place here, because when we read our story, and we read on in it, we see that by the time Jesus gets to Jerusalem, it's his royal claim, his claim to be something more, and uh, specifically more than the temple, and... um, (laughs) His experience in the temple, all these things combined that will actually get him tried and killed in Jerusalem. So this is a reflection. This is like a, a mirror image of what's to come. He's starting to talk about the temple and that he's greater than the temple. Remember that he talks about destroying the temple in three days. Do you remember that? Destroying it and it being rebuilt in three days. Do you remember all and then they were like, We don't like that. That's you know, that was weird and how are you gonna do it and all of that. So this is him, this is Matthew's pointing us to the future of what's about to happen. And we see the shadow of the cross falling over our story. Now, the agenda of the Pharisees' meeting was as simple as this. It was to get rid of him once and for all. And it's at this point in our story that most of us shouldn't be surprised. We know this is coming. If we've been studying in the book of Matthew, we know that there's an end coming. Dale Bruner, another scholar, puts it this way. He says, when a person penetrates the vitals of a movement, as Jesus does in every religion and ideology he confronts, showing the movement's practical and even biblical obsolescence, that person threatens a movement intolerably. So there's nothing else to be done. He has poked holes in everything that they have thrown up to him. And so in our story, the tension begins to mount. Moving on, verse 15. Aware of this, so Jesus, totally aware. He withdrew from that place. And a large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell the others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I've chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name the nations will put their hope. Okay, we're almost done. Isn't that great? Yeah, Jesus, fully aware of what the Pharisees are doing. He knows. It's not like, you know, synagogues don't have a lot of closed doors in them. You know what I mean? So they go away, and he, he knows. He just knows that this is what's coming. And yet we see him not fight back. He doesn't defend himself, and especially in a way that would mirror the Pharisees. So he withdraws from where they are. But he still doesn't abandon what he was sent to do. Now, imagine with me for a second that you are Jesus. Some of you are like, this is way easier than you think. Um, And then your spouse is like, no, it's not. Uh, Right? little nudge here and there. Anyway, for some of us, it's way easier. Uh, For others, it must be harder. So anyway, imagine you're Jesus in this scene, in this setting. And opposition is growing, and your death is being planned. And it's not just like some CSI kind of death or whatever. It's like a real death. You know at the hand of the Roman government, you'll actually suffer and die your guarantee is not like a gunshot to the heart or the head or anything like that forgive me if that's too scary but those kind of things would be more simple or like lethal injection or whatever that's not what you would that's not how you would die in jerusalem or in rome that's not it he knows his impending death will be something ridiculous and severe things we can't even fathom up so here he is he knows his death is being plotted and just when you head out, just to get a little bit of space, you were just in two little tiffs with the Pharisees where you shut them down and that, you know, you're like, okay, I did that. Just when you're like, let me just get a second to breathe, you turn around only to notice that there are about a hundred people in your rearview mirror. All, all of them looking for you to heal them and to minister to them in their time of need. In their time of need. So remember how your death is being plotted, and you can't breathe because you just got out of this. Fancy argument, and these people are all like, well, let's do it. Let's get some ministry (laughs) on, right? I'll just tell you, this is the point where I'd be handing, just um, handing up the, or holding up the book boundaries, and being like, hey, let's just talk through this for a quick second. Let's talk about what personal space looks like. This is where I would honestly, I mean, as a pastor, I'm telling you, it's like full confessional. I'd be like, we're not doing this. I don't have time and space. Do you understand they're plotting my death? I've got to get my head together. I've even got to get into prayer with my heavenly father, tell me I'm not crazy, like whatever, and these people are like, hey, He's, like, walking out, and they're like, me too. You know, they're just like, we're coming. And they follow him, and Jesus, so gracious and so good, we read, healed them all. Not just, like, some and turned around and touched one, but he, in his kindness, healed all of their sickness, all of their disease. And, and it makes you stop and just marvel at this man who they were going to crucify. Now, after he healed these people, he said to them in his fashion, don't tell anyone about this. And we should be asking ourselves, just as they did in the day, why? And we get our answer in verse 17. Matthew tells us this was to fulfill a prophecy that was spoken about the Messiah, the one who had come hundreds of years before. And this is how we and the people of the day would know that he was in fact the one that we had been waiting for. In verses eighteen to twenty-one, we read uh, what that Messiah would be like. And without a doubt, these ten great lines from Isaiah explain Jesus's silent retreat from the Pharisees and provides for all of us a clear review of Jesus's ultimate mission. Now, this passage that we read that's like a little bit should look a little chunky in your text. Um, this, it's called The Servant, and it's a little bit of a strange one, and what I mean is it is an unusual description of what a king or what a messiah would look like. This isn't what we would expect, right? If we were reading this, we'd be like, that's not totally what I imagine a king to be like, and if the people in the day were reading it, they'd be like, that is not at all what we're expecting to come. And the passage starts out stating that this servant, which is a problem in and of itself, right? That's like Messiah, the servant. It's just, now to us it feels romantic now, but in the day we would have been like, what a servant? It doesn't make any sense. So it starts out saying that the servant will bring blessing and justice to the world, which everyone says Hoorah! Right, and the cool thing of this text is this world, uh, this word "world" here in the Hebrew is actually the word "goyim," and it, it's for Gentiles, and that would be most of us in this room. It would be like this: Messiah is actually coming. The servant is coming to bring justice and blessing to the world, not just not just to one people, not just to the Jewish people, but to all people. So that would have been shocking for the Jewish people to hear, and we are very grateful for it. Look down at verse 19. It says, "He will not quarrel or cry out." And no one will hear his voice in the streets. Now, he's going to bring this justice and this blessing to the world, but it seems he will not do it by screaming out. He won't do it by harassing or bullying Israel or the nations. He won't do it by threatening or fighting. Rather, we read, it will be through the quiet and gentle work of healing, bearing in the love and grace of God to the dark places in Israel and to the world at large. Now, of course, the hearers of the day would have read this and thought, this is completely backwards. Withdraws and commands to silence are puzzling messianic deeds. Messiahs don't ordinarily retreat. Uh, they should be advancing instead. This is, they should be moving ahead with the campaign or the mission. Messiahs don't usually seek to be hidden, but they seek to be known so that the people can rally around them and join in with the battle cry. And so here at the center of the quotation is Matthew's central point. Jesus did not stay around to show the Pharisees and the people alike that he was Lord, nor did he flaunt his powers. He is not a persistent solicitor. solicitor. He is one who works quietly and inconspicuously and with measure. And this is who the whole book has been about. This is the way God's Messiah works in contrast to all other messiahs. And we read here about the one we had just witnessed. Now, The text goes on, and and it talks about this bruised reed um, and a a wick. And so let me explain just a little bit of that. In the ancient world, a reed was used to measure or to support something, and if it became bent or bruised or broken, it would become uh, become completely discarded. They couldn't use it in that day. And the same is true with a, a lamp wick that smokes. Like if it's too low, think about your Bath and Body Works candle. And if it, yes, I already got my fall ones. Anybody else? Yes, we're committed to the cause. Uh, yes, in in faith. That's why I'm wearing long sleeves. Also in faith. None of it's working. Uh, but when your when your Bath and Body Works candle gets down to the wick and it's just smoking, it's one. It's not going to emanate a lot of light, and it's not actually doing what it's supposed to do. And that's what it was in the ancient world. It it couldn't give off light, so it was rendered useless. So what exactly is Matthew trying to tell us about this Messiah? Messiah. Matthew is painting a picture for us us, to understand that this king, this servant would come to the meek and to the lowly, those who would normally be discarded by uh, the culture, by people even forgotten, those who would be rendered useless according to society. And he says that this is who the true king would come for. He would come to bring hope, to these people, to the least of these. And that is what we find in Jesus' ministry all throughout his life. Bottom line, the passage in Isaiah stuck here in the middle of Matthew is meant to tell us the story of God's restorative and redemptive plan for the world. And it's meant to point us to the great servant, one that no one would expect in a way that no one would would expect him to come. And it's in this servant that the world, not just the people of Israel, but the world would find its hope. And all of us are marveling because we realize, just as the other readers have for thousands of years, that this is Jesus himself. So, what's important here? A few things. Now, for me, I've got, I have got got—I—I got to read this text like a thousand times a week ago. And then um, even even this morning, I reread it. And there's um, something that stood out to me over and over again, and most of it has come in these beautiful final verses we find in the text. And uh, it's found really in this final declaration, not only about who Jesus was, but about who Jesus is. And, you know, after reflecting a bit on this and kind of sitting in that for uh, a day or two, I was reminded of some realities that have been a part of my life as a disciple of Jesus for a good while. And the first... Don't blow into the microphone. uh, The first is that despite being fully aware of the beauty and the goodness of Jesus, often on my journey with him, I have been tempted to do far more than I have been been tempted to just be. Now, obviously, the dream is to have your do flowing out of your being, um, but that isn't always the case. So for me, that's been an issue. The other thing that stood out was that Jesus is rarely, if ever, who I expect him to be. And that has uh, a power, the power, for those of us who are disciples of Jesus, to shape and to inform and to cultivate the rhythm of our spiritual lives in such a way that we will either let it distract us and deter us from our journey with Jesus, or we will allow it to be a space of mystery, of surrender, and ultimately of communion with him. You see, here's the reality. Jesus is always, 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 always calling us to more. When we look at our text, it shouldn't be lost on any of us that the Pharisees are at the center of conflict with Jesus. And their conflict centers around the reality that they are unable to see that relationship with God had become more of a ritual to perform than it was an actual relationship to to nurture and to cultivate. Jesus, by his very nature, and not to mention in his every single teaching, is constantly drawing their attention to the more, to the heart behind their religious practice. And and he's not doing it beautifully, so kind. He's not doing it to humiliate them, but to invite them into the reality of the kingdom, to invite them into experience and, and beauty of life as it was intended to be. Jesus knew that if the practice of the law was implemented without it being connected to relationship with God, then it would simply be ritualism. And ritualism without uh, relationship leads always to spiritual paralysis. And some of us in the room know that. We've been disciples of Jesus long enough where we know that the ritual doesn't actually produce intimacy, that just the over and over and over again of something doesn't actually produce life. Now, it'd be easy for me to say to you, and probably easy for you to say to me, that these Pharisees are so dumb. We could read this and be like, they are the dumbest, if they could only figure it out. But the truth is, all of us will be tempted by the same reality at one time or another. At at one point, if not now, then in the future, and probably repeatedly over and over again, in my experience, you're going to be tempted to lean into a formula over and against Actually moving forward in intimacy with Jesus because the reality is, and all of us know this, if you've been a disciple of Jesus for a long time and some of you really in this room right now know the reality of this, that moving forward with Jesus is often harder than we think it is. It's a little bit more uncomfortable and sometimes it's a little bit more costly and painful than we felt like we signed up for. There are times when a lot of us, including myself, will do just about anything to, invo- uh, to avoid actually moving into the deeper spaces with Jesus, and so from that place, we naturally, in our system of life and the way that we operate, particularly in this faith, we turn to formulas, which is a, f- a kind of ritual. It's something that we do, and a lot of times, deceptively, unknowingly. For some, it's God just loves me. God loves me, and I don't have to do anything. And so you use that reality to stay where you are. God loves me. It's all good. I'm just going to be right here. Just receive love. And that's good. It's true. He does love you. Um, for others, it's going to be, if I'll just do A, B, and C, if I just get that under control, even tonight, the temptation to believe here when I'm standing here and worshiping is like, if I could just obey God a little bit better. That was what was going on in my head. God had already spoken to me this morning about something I should have done. I turned around this afternoon. I did it again. And I was like, ugh. I like, couldn't get into worship because I'm like, what? I'm, so, I'm just such a dum-dum. Like, I just cannot get this under control, and I'm never going to. I just have this wild thing about me for, in a lot of ways. But anyway, if I could just do the A, B, C thing, then maybe I'll be okay, and I'll stay where I'm at. If I could just do what God asked me to do. But you know what the beauty of was what happened there in worship for me was that God said, uh, uh, Hold on a second. It's not about whether you did it or you didn't do it. It's that you just turned right around to me. You fell right back into my arms, and you said, I'm so sorry. I didn't want to do that. I want to follow you and obey you. And it was that space of communion that he's after. It's neither God's love nor the things he asks us to do. Uh, None of those things are the destination. They are meant to draw us into more. When he asks us to do something, when he asks me to not do what I did this morning, he was like, don't do that again. That's not wise or healthy or good or what you actually feel. His intent is not just to scold me and correct me and make me this linear person, but to to have actual intimacy and communion with him. God loves you. That's awesome. But how much closer are you to mastering the art of loving people and loving God in every single part of your life? You keep up with your spiritual disciplines, you do the practices, you're like me, you do the quick repentance thing, or you try to, you're trying to like, okay God, I'm really trying to figure this stuff out. Again, how much of that is actually invading all the parts of your life, all the spaces that would reflect the goodness of God and the reality of God in your life, and draw you closer into his heart? This is what he's after. Jesus is constantly directing the Pharisees attention to God's heart behind the law. They have the law, but it is no good if they don't if it doesn't move them to the heart of God. And he has been saying that over and over again. The spiritual disciplines and the identity God has given you, they are a means to an end. They are not God himself. And he is jealous for that space in your life. He is jealous for the relational dynamics and affections that you find with objects over and against him. Even in your confession, he's jealous for what you will give to the confession and not actually give to him. He wants you, all of you. And yet, the reality is, he is so frustrating because he won't be limited either to some formula that I make him up to be. I reasoned out right here in like two minutes. It was astonishing. You all missed it, but it was an astonishing display of wisdom and insight. But I reasoned out why God was not happy with me. In, in two minutes, it was unbelievable. Sparks were flying, it was so good over here. All in this moment, you guys were, I don't know what you were doing, what were you paying attention to? Why weren't you looking at me? Anyway, so um, all that to say, I had reasoned God away. I had told him who he was, even in my confession of my sin to him. And, and, and we had no space, and he was like, again, you're, putting, you're about to talk to these people about this. So, let, okay, so let's try to learn it real quick. <laughs> so we did. So here's what I'm learning. I'm learning that thinking you have Jesus figured out is a dangerous place to be. And for the disciple of Jesus, this is something we're battling constantly. This is something we're gonna come up against time and time again, all throughout Matthew's Gospel, and even in our text today, we've been pointed to the reality of this truth. Jesus wasn't and isn't what anyone expects him to be, and he certainly did not come the way that they expected him to come. Over and over again, we see that those who didn't embrace the reality that he wasn't going to look or to come or to be what they expected him to be usually ended up either missing him completely or living under the illusion of religion and ritualism or they let their disappointment in who he wasn't deter them from life in the kingdom altogether. For the disciple of Jesus, thinking he should be or do what I expect him to will lead me either to being completely disappointed and separated from him or becoming stagnant and stuck in my relationship with him, it always does that. It's one of two veins, and it's a mess. Disappointment, because he isn't who I think he should be. I'm disappointed, so, so I want nothing to do with him. I pull away from him. Even in that moment, I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, like, come on, you don't want this. You do not trust me. I'm telling you, look, babe, you don't want this. You know what I mean? I'm, like, telling God, and he's like, okay. I'm coming you know like just that or stagnation and he's exactly who I thought he would be so I'm all good I'm totally good because I don't don't have to move towards him he's what I want him to be he's operating by the way this comes in seasons he's operating the way I prefer him to operate in this season so we're good but in the next season when he doesn't the, the game has slipped on its head do you know what I'm talking about yeah so so this is where we need to talk about some expectations because Jesus is not who we expect him to be, not always. And the reality is, all of us will likely encounter moments on our road to discipleship of Jesus when we realize that he is not who I think him up to be. He is not measurable, he is not moldable, he doesn't fit into my framework, and that is insanely frustrating when I'm trying to figure him out and have a little bit of control over him, amen. Just, I'm just trying to figure it out, right? The moment when cancer returns and you've been praying, cancer returns, and you question altogether whether he is a healer or he isn't, whether he cares about me at all. Question moments when you think uh, that you know what's best, that you're telling God how things should go, you're dictating to, to him what the next leg of the journey should look like, and all of a sudden he says to you, look, I'm asking you to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. Moments on the road where you are begging God to, to bring him or her back into your life. You're begging God to bring your mother back, to bring your father back, whatever it is, you're begging him, and it seems like he didn't hear you at all. Moments when you thought God would meet you in your suffering, in, in these specific ways that feel measurable and tangible, and he feels 10 million miles away. Expectations come in all different ways, and I know Josh has talked about this. I know y'all have heard it, but maybe we need to hear it again expectations inevitably come crashing down in the life of the believer only to reveal who and what Jesus really is. And that is better. He is mysteriously better than we expect him to be. And it is the betterness of Jesus, the same betterness we find in the text today amongst the the Pharisees and the people alike, along with all the upside-downness of who Jesus really is, a servant who came, not just for a nation, but for all people, who would suffer at the hands of a government that would murder him and crucify an innocent man. Him, he would walk a road, none of us would walk, so that we could have life to the full. That is who he is, better than you expect him to be you would have told him long before he did any of that 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 was stupid that he didn't have to go that way that he didn't have to walk the road you thinking you know better and yet he was bringing us life Jesus always is working against all the ideas and schemes that we have about him not because he's cruel or he's playing a game with us or he's manipulative but because he's after relationship and intimacy with us formula and predictability keep us from intimacy. If I was married, and we all said amen, if I was married to a person, and let's just say, even in my friendship with Josh, let's just say, you know, we just knew what to assume about that person, right? I mean, I know, I know Josh well enough to be able to go, yeah, I know what Josh likes, I know what he doesn't like, I know decently, like, where to be sensitive, all that kind of stuff, but if, if our, if our relationship is strictly just ritual, strictly predictability, there's nothing different, and I allow him no space to say anything that's obscure, to say anything that would hurt my feelings, and vice versa, then nothing's going to happen in our actual friendship. It's gonna be safe? Yeah, I'll know what to expect, but nothing dynamic will happen in our friendship. And the same is true for the person I marry. I can know his Enneagram type, and I can know his Myers-Briggs and all that crap. But if we're not actually willing to engage each other on a deep, intimate level, willing to wrestle through things and work things out, then we will be nothing more than people walking and operating in a lonely, honestly, Less intimate marriage than most people on the planet. It's just insane. You can't ask that to be a reality. Jesus is not into predictability because it keeps us from actually trusting and being surprised and actually having to believe and lean into and operate in a different reality, a different part of our person. If we can predict him, then then we have no faith at all. It's not required in that space, and he's after the more. Now, um, I've I've just debated on what to tell you that would feel applicable to your life and mine about this reality, and I think I'm going to tell you um, this more personal story, which I wasn't going to, but you barely know me, so it's fine. (laughs) I'm not going to tell anyone. We're not going to put this on the podcast. It's almost 50 minutes anyway of teaching. I'm sweating like a buffoon. I'm up here. Woo! It's just hot. Um, I'm just going to tell you this story. So I... Um, and I'm not going to give any details because I just can't, But um, which is okay, but I'm going to give you enough details to keep you in. So um, I have, and um, some of you are this, I have a story my mom left uh, when I was 14. Um, all the stuff, she came back seven years later. I didn't have contact with her for those um, seven years. Um, tough story, but Jesus met us in really tangible ways. But that's contributed, obviously, to a lot of trauma in my life. Uh-huh. And so uh, I've been in therapy for eight years, so I am... Very well, like adjusted, for the most part. So let your your thirty-something um, male friends know that. But um, <laughs> but um, but that leads to some stuff in my life. And I was going into a conversation the other day. Woke up in the morning. I had a conversation. Was going to have a conversation that afternoon. And I realized that I something was wrong in me. Do you ever wake up and you're like, I'm anxious about something, but I have my coffee. And <laughs> I'm reading the Bible what's going on, you know, so I sat with the Lord, and I said, you know, could you just tell me, like, what's going on, I feel like there's something you're, you're trying to communicate to me, so I sat in a space that I always sit, and I just said, would you show me, I think, I think I'm believing a lie about myself, and so after, like, you know, three minutes, four minutes, he's, I'm thinking stuff, and he's like, no, 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 and then finally, God says, this is the lie, and it had to do with my self-worth, and my lovability, and that's what it usually has to do with, anyway, all that to say, um, I sat there, and I was like, well, what is the truth, and that's normally something I do where I just go, like, can you tell me the truth? Because I'm, I'm suffocating under the lie. I mean, I'm just paralyzed by it. I can feel every part of my person just shutting down, going into this conversation, like, bummed out and scared and weird, activated in my trauma, I could tell. Um, so all that to say, I sat there with the Lord in the space of my house that I always sit and when, I'm, when we got to do something serious. You know, it's like married people. We're like, let's go to the table. But we don't go to the table. We go to the floor. So, um... We go to the floor, and I'm there, and I just said, God, what's the truth? And normally, he's like, this is the truth. And I'm like, oh, that was wonderful. But this time, he didn't. He took an hour, which is a long time. Have, that's a long time in prayer, right? To, and he began to show me these scenes from my life. And it was so weird. He showed me the scene um, that I hadn't thought of in years, of me being like seven or eight years old. And I was on the floor in our wood paneling family room, and I was listening to, I, I think it was Twyla Paris, which I, mean, I don't even know if you, don't even, don't look her up. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> And I was listening to her, and I remember worshiping God, and I remember feeling his presence. And I um, and was like, oh, that's so great. And I was like, you were with me. That's so great. And so then fast forward to some scenes when my mom left, and there was like, I've got all kinds of fun stories, but one of them was, um, we were so poor at one point, which is not like super poor, trust me, um, but we had to eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for two weeks straight every meal, which is why I just can't. I mean, I really can't. I love him. That's great, but we just had to do that with something, and the Lord reminded me of that space and where he was in that space with me. And right after my mom left, I remember I was in my bedroom all by myself, and we had to move out of our childhood home and move to this smaller townhouse, and I felt so alone and isolated. And I remember the, the scene perfectly. I remember it. I was, like, 14, and I I could see Jesus where he was in that room, and I could see, I could hear him saying the things to me that he was saying, and I just remember thinking, whoa. And fast forward, these are all, like, these really sad, hard, uh, hard memories, and I should have, like, violin music playing. Anyway, it's like, oh. Um, and they were sad to me. Maybe you're like, they're not this. Okay. They were sad to me. And, um, and then there was just a few others of hard times in my life, times when I worked at this glass-cutting place, and I was really alone. I was in this house with my dad, but really alone. It was really weird. And then some other scenes from college and other spaces where I just felt like God had abandoned me, and um, or had been present, but then was like, marked with this paradoxical like, pain. All that to say, I was like, that's helpful, not super helpful. What would you like me to know? Um, I was crying. I was like weeping. I was like, okay, God, these are beautiful. You were there, but th- that all those times suck. So if you're telling me this is about to suck and I'm, you're going to be there, great. You know, it's like one of those things in the life of a disciple. But all that to say, in, in like a moment, he started to show me these, others mem- these other memories. So those are like hard, painful memories. He was present with me. But then he showed me all these other ones, and when I was 16, um, I had a surprise birthday party that was thrown by all these people in the church, and like 50-something people showed up. Um, because I couldn't. And then one time, this lady named Nancy was like, you need a new bra. and I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but she was like, your mom would know that, but your mom's not here, so I'm going to take you to the mall. We're going to the mall. Come on. And so she took me. And then uh, this other lady, Miss Robin, took me to the mall. I was so humiliated, because in that season, I was just so humiliated by what we couldn't do and what we couldn't afford. And and even the week that we had peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, I remember Mr. Gentry, this guy at our church, put a lot of money in my hand, and he said, go give it to your dad. And we were able to get other food. Like, that was the coming out of the two weeks. And, And I just kept seeing all these really radical, Acts of God's kindness. And in all those ways, I never asked Him to come in any of those spaces. None of them. I didn't, I didn't have words to articulate what God should have done in that space. I could have told you then, like, maybe He should make my mom come back and make her be responsible or whatever. I would have told you something. But, but, he, but I didn't. And in that space, God showed up in a way that was better than I expected Him to be. And and what God was trying to remind me of is that he would be better to me in that conversation and in a thousand other conversations and a thousand other moments in the days ahead than I expect him to be. And that is true for all of us in this room. It's true for all of us that God shows up in ways we never expect him to if we will let him do it. If we will take off our expectations and say, and that was the thing. I was like, God, you showed up in ways I could not have imagined. You showed up and did things for me that I couldn't have even asked you to do. I would have never asked you to do any of those things, and yet you did it. And he was like, this is who I am. This is who I am to you. And in all those spaces, you know what was the greatest thing that stuck in my head was intimacy with him? Was that we in those spaces, I remember weeping at the goodness of God, weeping at the reality that he was so much better than I expected him to be and that he would continue to be that. Now, I know that's intense but we have to pray about what we just heard. Can you stand with me just a second?